Throughout history, Christians have created art, written books, and made music for worship, entertainment, and to express their faith in ever-increasing endeavors. And for the last six decades, they have created contemporary Christian music for the church and for the masses. Here at Legacy, we are counting down the finest works over these last decades. So join me, your host, David Lohman, as we celebrate CCM's greatest albums, right here on Legacy. All right, welcome to Legacy. I'm your host, David Lohman, and we have got a jam-packed episode today. We are going to be talking about music from the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and the 2000s. We're going to be talking to Randy Rose of Mad at the World, and we have very special guests, three of the founding members of Servant. That's right, Owen and Sandy Brock, along with Rob Martins, will be joining me. We're going to be talking about Shallow Water and the history of Servant. We have a whole bunch of other music to talk about as the countdown continues, so hang on as there'll be more right now on Legacy. Here at Legacy, we want to make it easy for you to find us. There are several different ways that you can talk to us and let us know what you think about what is going on here at the podcast and also on the blog. You can always go to our website at LegacyCCMsGreatestAlbums.com. That's LegacyCCMsGreatestAlbums.com or by email at LegacyCCMsGreatestAlbums at gmail.com. You can always find us on the Facebook and interact with us there at facebook.com slash legacy ccm's greatest albums at instagram at legacy ccm's greatest albums and finally on twitter at legacy ccm's best number 939 I recently had the opportunity to speak with Randy Rose of Mad at the World about his side projects known as Rose. The album in question is Sacrificium, and we had a great conversation that I believe you're really going to enjoy. So without any further ado, here is Randy Rose. All right, welcome back to Legacy. This is your host, Dave Lohman, and I am bringing on uh, Randy Rose from uh, Mad at the World, who you might be most familiar with, and also the band Rose, and also the band Mothership, which I know a lot of people were really into. So um, I, I, I brought on Randy because we're going to be talking about the album Sacrificium, but I think it's really difficult to start talking about that album before we get a little bit of a history of, of Mad at the World and their transition um, albums three and four being so different than one and two, uh, though I make the argument that there were several songs on Flowers in the Rain that would have fit nicely on Seasons of Love and Boomerang. We'll kind of uh, start the conversation there. So, Randy, thank you so much for joining me right here on Legacy. Well, thank you for having me. I'm 
Glad to be here. Yeah, well, this is super cool. We've been trying to, to work this out for a while, and I'm really glad we have this opportunity. In fact, before I pushed record, I, we were talking about uh, the first time that I met you guys was at uh, when I was managing Maranatha Village before I started working for Frontline, and you guys came in, gave me an autographed copy of the first album, and that was right before the uh, Mad at the World public debut at a yeah. New Year's Eve at Knott's Berry Farm, because a lot of people don't really know um, back in those days, the the Knott's Berry Farm Christian Music Nights were two or three a year. The big one was New Year's Eve, but the owner of Frontline Records also had a great deal to do with those events since they were called Frontline Events, and a lot of his bands had a chance to uh, debut there. We always saw Daniel Amos, Alter Boys, Lifesavers, all those oh, yeah. all those cool bands were always playing there. Absolutely. And and you guys played New Year's Eve, and and for those who have never been to Knott's Berry Farm, right in the middle of the park, there is this outdoor stage that they set up next to the train station, and it is um, th- it was the perfect location for you guys because um, being relatively unknown at the time, you guys make this uh, debut performance of this kind of Depeche Mode techno yeah. sort of music with this crazy stage. Uh, display with mannequin heads. G- give us a picture of what that was all about. And you were what, sixteen at the time? Fifteen, sixteen um, years old? Yeah, I would have. I would have been fifteen, just maybe, maybe barely sixteen at that point. Um, actually, I think it was when I was very first signed with Mad at the World. I was like fourteen, so I was. I think I was the youngest artist tied with uh, Crystal Lewis at one point. I think she might have <laughs> had me had me by a couple months or so. But we were the we were the we were the kids on the label. But yeah, my setup was uh, inspired by. The fact that we were <laughs> we were a long time you know rock band as far as you know growing up playing with my brother and Mike Pendleton we were always kind of a, a little threesome band that did you know Kansas covers and stuff like that and then we had our own little band called called Eyewitness um, and it was it was us three for for years and years and years of course I was just a little ridiculous you know tiny little kid at this point I was, I was playing for the band when I was like seven, eight years old, believe it or not. I was just a real good hard drummer at that point. So, so you were uh, the Hanson drummer at the time. I, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, because I was, you know, my, my both my brothers, Ray and Roger, you know, they have 14 years on me. So there's, there's a big, big age difference there. So, you know, even though I could play, you know, like the rest of them, I still looked like a little silly, funny little kid, you know, swing on the swing set, you know, while the other guys are sound checking still, you know. So <laughs> it, took a, it took a while for me to catch up when people, you know, realize, okay, he, he, he knows what he's doing, so it's okay that he's so young or whatever but yeah um we were we were inspired a lot by uh k-rock you know the big station out in california that you know that that broke you know a lot of bands but you know smith out in america depeche mode boingo boingo they literally i mean literally broke that band they were a local band there so you know a lot of these all these bands are super inspirational to me and roger um, for the Mad at the World stuff, and we realized, you know, uh, let's let's do this like to do some sequencing and start to, you know, get into the, you know, Commodore 64s, and that's what that first stuff we used to do was actually sequenced on was Commodore 64s and Commodore 128. So it was really interesting, pre, you know, pre, I mean, super, you know, like cutting edge for that time, but I mean, prehistoric. We think, you know, looking back at it now, you know, how limited it really was. But we started sequencing music. And you know, it was really, really great in the studio, and we felt really comfortable, you know, imitating with our little phony English accent, so we couldn't help, you know. Um, okay. Um, well, if you're not, going to cover Morrissey, you kind of have to do the, uh, the you, you, accent. You kinda, you, yeah, it, yeah, exactly. It, it, it wouldn't fit otherwise. You got, you got to do that. Um, so we realized, you know, what, what are we going to do with this live? And um, you know, I was kind of my strongest point was percussion and drums. I also played guitars and keys enough to be dangerous, you know, to write stuff. Certainly, you know, I got 
much better at bass and uh, you know guitar later in my life. But during that time, you know, what what do the percussionists do? You know, and I was thinking, well, you know, what did what did Depeche Mode do? Well, they had triggers, so I, I literally had a I had some sample backup vocals that were on a mannequin head. It was a purple mannequin head, and we actually put you know, a little like a mission, uh, kind of like a Mission UK looking. Uh, leather black cowboy hat on it and stuff and it had a it was just ridiculous and it was on a stand and it actually triggered like on bad motives it, it did a it did the living dead part for living dead the living the dead it did all that stuff and then it did some of the uh, backup vocals for bad motives and a lot of the stuff it was just trigger and then i also had two interesting things which were totally something roger created my brother and they're actual uh stovepipe you know vents and they were like six inch stovepipe vents that were by the time we played the show, we were actually pretty well caved in, so they were kind of where I would hit him in the inside of a drumstick. I'd have one, one on the left, one on the right, equivalent to you know, what someone we use the cymbal for, but I used them for uh, you know, backward sounds and crazy explosions because you know, a lot of the sounds for that early Mad at the World stuff was actually sam- sampled off of cartoons. Uh, you know, a lot of people didn't know that, but it was, it was like you know, the Saturday morning, you know. <laughs> Warner Brothers, you know, when Donald yeah. Duck would hit the hit the trees and all those weird little sounds, and a lot of that stuff was all sampled just off of hi-fi, you know, cartoon stuff. And we ended up playing all those triggers and samples. So basically, everything that was on the album, I'd say I paid about maybe about a third of it live by triggering it. You know, so there was something for me to do besides do my vocals and my back vocals. Um, and, and then I had an octopad too for a few of the people are familiar with that is just an old Roland uh, 8 padded type thing where I was able to trigger toms and snares so I did the snares and that stuff and I had real hi-hats too and I had a couple real cymbals but my my setup was very weird because like I said you know, we're, you know there's I'm literally standing completely upright with these two big smoke stacks you know um, <laughs> on each side of me and a mannequin head it was just it was crazy but I mean it was, it was you know quite the quite the sight to see I guess you know but it was a yeah, I always joke with people that there were about three, maybe 3,000 people that walked their way either through, stood, and watched, but I've run across at least 50,000 people that said they were there. Because uh, oh, it wow. just got well, it just got this weird reputation for a while. Um, mm-hmm. There was a couple write-ups in different magazines about this crazy setup and these mannequin heads, and, and you know, it just was, uh, it was just this kind of weird thing, especially... Uh, uh, for the time, it lo- didn't look like the normal. You know, it definitely was oh, not yeah. a, a Sandy Patty show. It was no, very yeah, different. Right. So you guys kind of do these. You know, I think a lot of people separate uh, albums one and two from the rest of the history. In fact, a lot of people will take the first two albums, then the next three, and then the next two. Um, but there's this obvious transition, which again I, I mentioned in the intro. Um, I think there are songs on Flowers in the Rain and even a little bit on the, the debut, Mad at the World, where the guitars are significantly heavier. It's not as Depeche Mode. It's, it's got some super aggressive sound. But then when Seasons of Love comes out and, yeah. and follow up with Boomerang, it's definitely a, a, a lot more of this heavy guitar sort of sound. And at that same time, somewhere, what, between Seasons of Love and Boomerang, uh, you decide to do a solo project. Uh, is that about the same uh, time frame? Yeah, it, it, it's close. It was. Uh, it was. I. It looks like it's. <laughs> I'm having to go with what the internet says. So let's, let's hope that they're right on this. <laughs> it, it, it's going on '91 when yes. uh, I, I did the very first, you know, Rose album, and that's also the time um, that another Mad World album was basically simultaneously released, which was yep. Boomerang, at that exact same time. So it was just. It was just after that. 
And what, what we kind of found ourselves doing, it was kind of the opposite of what I was just saying, where, where you're really excited about something new and interesting, you know, like the stove pipes and triggering the electronic stuff. And it's really interesting until it becomes a song where it's like, you know, I can really be laying into a real drum set here. Like, for instance, you know, we sampled a lot of real drums on a lot of those later albums where basically I was played, playing real drums on it anyway. So it, it would be so nice to have sat down and actually played a kit on some of this stuff. And, you know, unfortunately, I don't know, but maybe I shouldn't say unfortunately, you know, Man of the World has been guilty of being, you know, kind of chameleons or whatever but I, I i like to consider it just more like we just the kind of stuff that we would want to purchase for ourselves we wanted a christian version of it you know we wanted to uh, you know not be ashamed of what we're playing we didn't want to have to go through the things that a lot of christians do where they break their secular cds every you know year <laughs> you know and, and, and end up buying them back six months later you know um we were we were tired of that game we wanted to be able to have something that was legitimately you know equivalent to the best of our ability, you know, what, what all the kids were, you know, really digging and getting into. But when it came out to the thing where we're doing different style of music, we started doing a little more of the guitar stuff. Um, and once again, that was, you know, that really kind of was our roots. Um, I would like to say, you know, we're, we were years and years and years into the keyboard techno stuff, but we probably we probably had about you know, five or six years of, of that. You know, it, it it wasn't it wasn't as deep as our rock roots were. It wasn't as deep as Rogers. You know, hard, heavy. You know, stuff. He actually he actually you know kind of like some of the very first albums. Lord forbid, I must not admit, but that I ever I ever saw as a kid. You know, I mean, I, I was like some. You know, they used to play Black Sabbath stuff, so that was like a real a real huge thing that <laughs> you know that, that I realized. Oh wow, there's also this other element. You know that. To what we kind of you yep. know do, and and, and, and Man at the world never never completely got you know that that far in there. But what we did do is we started writing songs that worked out for a live show, and that was that was the whole big part of this transition. Because after a while, it was just weird uh, standing behind these you know these, these these triggers and these samples because we we're you know trying to trying to pull this you know rock show off and just. It's just not the same. I mean, yeah, and that and that rock show. Um, in fact, those two albums, uh, Boomerang and Seasons of Love. You, it's interesting you brought up Black Sabbath because there's actually some guitar tones that totally reminded me of Black Sabbath um, yeah, on that. But there's also like some some kind of cool ZZ Topish, and even going mm-hmm. back earlier with Uriah Heep um, and some of the yeah. blues influenced stuff, like The Doors, uh, really kind of yeah. starts to show up. And then there's even some. Uh, progressive stuff later that has some uh, Beatlesque sort of things and you were talking about Kansas earlier um, oh, some yeah. really yeah. strong melodic and orchestra oriented um, things so at that's so at this time you all of a sudden you come out and you end up wanting to do um, sacrificium um, obviously yeah. a lot of people compare it to Danzig in just that sure. it's just heavy and slow and pounding and yep. relentless I've, I was reading one review that had this really negative review, but every single comment underneath it was like, you clearly don't know what this is all about. And I love yeah. it that the fans yeah. totally got what yeah. you were doing, even if the, the CCM type reviewer didn't get what you were doing. So how do you decide, hey, I'm in part of this band that's relatively successful. We're getting out there. We're selling a, you know, a good amount of albums. But then you decide to do a, a solo project. How does that come out? Well, that, that came out because even moving on further into the Mad at the World records, I ended up starting to write a good amount of songs. Um, 
Yeah, there, there were a couple albums where I ended up writing, you know, 65%, of, you know, almost uh, definitely over half the album, some of the different albums. So I was just writing and recording constantly in my own home studio while Mad at the World was doing this um, and doing, you know, doing our own things, playing some different shows and stuff like this. And um, I really was just always blown away by the band, uh, the Cult. You know, I, I, there's obviously you you see that even going into like some of the puppet spring stuff. I mean, yeah, just blatant ripoffs of of, of, our, of our licks and whatnot. But they were, you know, they were just. Uh, as a younger kid, I was in high school when I when I first heard that. It, it, was just, it just blew me away. It's like, what is this this cool ACDC rock stuff with this great you know singer that was you know and, and Roger does a real good Ian Ashbury. He, he, he can do him very well. Um, so that was also another reason why you know this kind of this kind of you know stimulated this. And also, I always kind of felt that the singer of the Cult was kind of a you know a combination between. Jim Morrison and you know and Glenn Danzig and, and himself. Anyways, you know he had that he had that Western draw, but he definitely well, actually he, he sung for the new uh, Doors. Actually, when the Doors did their you know their new version of the Doors, the original Doors, uh, Ian Ashbury was the singer for the new Doors. So hmm. that's who they chose. He, he definitely uh, did. You know that? No, that's that's interesting. Yeah, he, yeah. He, he, yeah, yeah, yeah. Before Ray Manzarek, the keyboarder, you know, died, they were doing that and touring, and he did a great version of that. But you know, it was so natural the Danzig ish. Hard, sludgy rock stuff was so natural for me because my voice, my natural voice, without any accent or whatever, just just pushing it and singing, even just the slightest bit of soulfulish, you know, is very, very similar to you know, Jim Morrison. And I, I got that a lot live because you know we would do a lot more songs live than we even did on the album. You know, we, we started introducing some Rose songs, um, you know, live, and it ended up where the end of the set, probably the last half hour, the last thirty-five minutes was was all Rose stuff or all stuff that I saw. I actually came out from under drums and Roger went back there and played and we just ended up starting to do that. So I realized, wow, this this, this would really rock live. Um, and I'm already doing it in the studio. You know, I, mean, I, already, I already had basically a Saxophician demo um, just done by a couple of buddies. It was pretty much all me at that point. Yeah. But, you know, it was, for the demo, I had a couple of good, good friends come up and show up and do that and I had, I had just tons of songs and it was just so easy to do it was so second nature um, I just wanted to give it a shot and then ultimately for that same weird reason and it's not a weird reason it's a good reason the reason that you know I found myself absolutely embarrassed and ashamed for ever buying a Danzig record even though I was you know kind of justifying as well hey I'm trying to find out you know what what, what, what this is all about you know and yeah. to digest it regurgitate it and, and then throw up something that you know that you know I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say better but certainly godly and on you know and, 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 yes. and you know and, and very very huge 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 hole in the Christian ministry first of all because I like the ministry end of it a lot and that was just something that God always drew people who were seriously broken and tons of ex-Satanists and just people with just crazy pasts always came 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 my way. Um, even after the Math World shows, they'd come up and ask for prayer, and they, they, the stuff they would show me and, and, and tell me just blew my mind, and I realized, oh my goodness, these people have nothing to listen to. They literally have nothing to listen to. That's why they're listening to this, you know, Marilyn Manson and Danzig and all this stuff. So I wanted to be an alternative to that. So I just realized that, you know, this is where ministry, this is where my heart is, this is where musically I could pretty much kind of do it in my sleep. Not that it's overly simple, but it's it's, it's, it's simple to the point where it's melodic. You know, actually you can you know hum the, hum the melodies and whatnot, and that's huge, that's important, so it kind of sticks with you. Um, it was just something that was just 
a very natural progression. And, and my brother Roger was real sweet, and he basically you know set up the whole deal, set up the whole meeting with Frontline, and and pretty much they they yeah. felt it was a, a, no, a no brainer. And that's kind of he, that's kind of what I was what I was wondering because I'm like, do you, do you just like knock on? I mean, you, you don't go to Jimmy's house again and say, hey, I've got this demo tape and put it in his uh, <laughs> no, he, mailbox. But, you, you know, you say, hey, Mike McLean and, and Brian Tong, hey, do you guys uh, want to listen yeah. to something? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what we did. And uh, Roger basically said, you know, pretty much all, you know, you know, because he's because he's younger, I'll, I'll oversee it as far as, you know, you know, be the producer and whatnot. And we did it at Roger's studio, which was at that point was better than my studio at that, at that time. And, and you did uh, have some friends, though. Like you got, you had like the Martin brothers and a handful of yeah, other friends yeah, that yeah, showed Jason, up to work on it. Yeah, it's funny. And J- Jason was one of the very first drummers of the live stuff that we ever did. Jason Martin, he played drums, and he played for he those played, for I, those I not familiar. Say, you're talking about Starfire '59 and Starfire '59. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And uh, yeah, absolutely. And he, he he played in the studio, and we ended up. Doing what what they would call now is drum replacement in, on part of the stuff. Some of the some of the production stuff was just too dry, and it wasn't quite where we wanted it to. So we ended up having a good buddy and I named Chris Bino, which was with the guy who did like all my demo drum tracks. It was a combination of two drummers playing the same part. <laughs> That's what ended up happening on those drums. So they're very 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 different way of, way of doing it. But it's one of those things where you just you're going for a sound and you gotta you gotta chase it and. You know, we didn't have the technology we do today where I could use a, a drum replace it, you know, plug in and fly in any snare I want. It was a lot a lot a lot more challenging, you know, then. But yeah, a lot a lot of buddies. And of course Brent Gordon who was in Mad of the World, um, he ended up playing um, all the lead guitar. Roger played some of the rhythm guitar and I played some of the rhythm guitar. We probably split that in half and my oldest brother, Ray Rose, played all the bass on Sacrificium, which was great. So it was it was Literally, a, pretty much almost an all rose album, <laughs> except for my buddies, you know. Yeah, and and, and that's kind of cool. Cause so the first album, I guess they're they're playing off the the familiarity that some people might have with the rose name on um, on on Frontline, and, and the album ends up on Intense, which is kind of their metal label at the time. Yeah, and then it's and yeah. then everything kind of transitions to just a, a real band, a separate band called Rose. But b- yes. before, but before we get to mo- the most recent project, I want to um, deal with a couple of the songs and get your your feedback. My personal favorite, just so you know, and and it's probably one that I'll play on the podcast um, um, by itself, is a song "Black Harvest." Um, yeah. I just one. It's just a hook and a half. It's just this amazing oh, killer killer hook. What what is it we're trying to get across there in that in that song? Well. I grew up in high school where, you know, to be, I always kind of looked a little bit crazy. I had longer hair, dressed kind of wild, kind of like I did during the Mad of the World days because I was a, you know, I was in the band during almost all the high school years. So um, I got, I got, I got beat up for people, uh, you know, thinking that I was gay, looking, looking crazy. Um, you know, literally got my front teeth knocked out, and and I just realized, man, there is just so much wickedness, there's so much hatred. And as a, as a Christian, I, I, I did a Bible study at lunchtime. We had a, this is like totally would never happen today. I, I wish it would, but you know, we had a, we had a woodshop teacher who was a Christian that let us use the woodshop room and we had these Bible studies. And I kept finding so many of these new Christians were just so, you know, terrified of being, of being a Christian. You know, there was just so much 
pressure and just, I mean, this is Orange County, California, so it was just kind of the plastic, fantastic type people, you know, just, you know, I grew up there, so I was, I was used to it, and I, my dad was a super ridiculously hardworking guy, so we never, we were never snobbish, we, I was grateful for everything that God brought to us, you know, but we were in a, in, in a, in a snobby area, and it kind of seemed to make it hard, and I, and I don't mean any disrespect to Orange County, I, I, you know, love my roots, love where I grew up, but that's, that's what the high school scene was like in the, uh, you know, for me at least, you know, between, you know, 86 and 89, you know, when I finally graduated in 89. Um, but, you know, these, these kids just, they had to almost say that they were Christians under their breath. And I just realized how horrible that was because I got saved, believe it or not, at a, I think it was a, I think it was an Archer's concert a long time ago. Um, I was really, really, really young. And well, then Steve, and Tim, grew- Steve and Tim are listeners, so hopefully they'll uh, be excited to hear. <laughs> oh, that's cool. That. Yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Well, we, we love them. I, I, like I said, I, I grew up with, you know, Sweet Comfort Band, DA, Archer's, I mean, Teddy, all, all these different great, you know, founding fathers of, of Christian music. You know, we loved, loved all that stuff. So I went to a lot of those shows, but we went to that. The Christian nights at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, all the concerts you know, oh, that yeah. they had every Saturday at all. Every the Saturday night, I was there, every, and then we yeah, go to too. this. Then we go to this place called Hams down the street and get a, a peanut butter and chocolate chip shake. Um, and man, the Saturday nights that was oh, yeah. the place to be all throughout the eighties. Man, there was nothing it, like it. It was, it was amazing, and, and and you know who 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 blew me away? Well, I, and I know I'm I'm kind of. I'll paddle back to the question in a second, but I, this, this is kind of where my inspiration started with really with Christian music is um, Joey Taylor from Undercover. Um, Ojo, you know the way he used to speak on stage blew me away. You know he'd, he'd play he'd play this hardcore crazy song like God Rules, people would scream, and then he'd stop and he'd just open the Bible and start ministering to people. And he, it was so heavy, it was so anointed at that time. It was just wonderful. And, 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 and to see these kids actually excited about, you know, being a Christian, that they didn't have to be ashamed of the music. The message of, of the gospel was incredible. There's nothing ever to be ashamed of if you really know what it really is. It's the most beautiful thing in the world. So to be able to have a, you know, a, a music in a scene, because um, I don't think there's a scene right now. I, I, I think we don't have a real Christian music scene um, that I know of. At all. No, I used to be uh, able to every single Friday or Saturday night, the Lifesavers, Altar Boys, Daryl Mansfield, somebody was playing somewhere. Uh, Absolutely. These these bands were selling albums out of the trunk of their cars just to try to make ends meet. You know, I was talking previously, and you know, later in this broadcast, we'll be talking to the guys from Servant, and they're like, "Yeah, you know, you know, we we didn't have gas money to the next place. You know, we had (laughs) bum gas money." But there, but the oh, scene, yeah. the scene was was really cool, and, and I, you know, a lot of that was frontline stuff, and a lot of that was broken records. Yeah, um, it was. And and um, I, I want to b- b- get get to that heart of that song, though. If you could just kind of get to, you know, like, what is that heart of, of of Black Harvest? Well, the heart the heart of Black Harvest um, is being able to recognize, to be able to see things uh, through God's eyes. To be uh, offended uh, to the things that break his heart, to be sensitive to the things that actually just, you know, crush him. Th- very, very things he died for. Like, you know, uh, abortion, you know, now is just, it's just, it's literally, it's just, a, it's, just a, it's just a punchline right now. I mean, you know, Saturday Night Live, it's just a joke. They just laugh at someone that stands up for, uh, <laughs> you know, a, a human life. I mean, like, like, it, like that's something that's supposed to be joked about or whatever. And I, I, I just, I wanted just to portray 
you know, a, a, a spiritual, like if you look in the spiritual realm, a snapshot of what really is going on. How, how, how much agony and, and sowing seeds of darkness and wondering why we're reaping so much garbage in America and why there's so much hatred and so much uh, dissent, so much judgment, so much murder, so much rape, all this stuff. I mean, basically, I was just, I'm always like, if I know a song, I would love to believe every song that I have written is from God. When I know it's from God, it's because I'm deeply offended, hurt, and wounded over it. I mean, I'm literally, like, broken over it, and it's like, if I don't get it out of me, <laughs> I feel like I'm going to explode, or or, or, or or I'm not telling this story that needs to be told, you know, before I go away. It, 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 it's that feeling, it's that urgency. So Black Harvest is, is, is basically about see, seeing, th- excuse me, seeing things for the way they really are um, in the spiritual realm, about how dark everything is, how hopeless everything is without Jesus, you know, without God's love, um, and being able to, un, you know, unashamedly declare that and, and, and have, you know, maybe have an anthem for some people that, you know, want to rebuke what should be rebukable, <laughs> in my opinion, you know, and I mean, it, it's funny, because when I hear myself talk, I'm just so used to the media, because uh, I haven't had an interview in a while, um, it, I, I, I probably sound like an extremist, you know, but I mean, that's, to me, that's, <laughs> what, I mean, that's, that's what it sounds like, but that's, when, when when have we stopped being activists? We we should have been activists from day one. That's the whole point. Yes, and, and that seventies and eighties Christian artists were activists, whether it was Absolutely. Servant or Larry oh, yeah. Norman or Randy Stonehill. Well, we of only have course. a couple. We only have a couple minutes left, and I think this is a perfect segue when you're talking about brokenness and brokenhearted and pain and suffering and sin in the world. The last project that really kind of that was released, um, you dealt with probably one of the most difficult subjects. Uh, on the planet, and that is ritual sexual abuse. Um, yeah. That was a, a very, very intense project. You know, with, with what we have, you know, 90 seconds or so left, can you kind of give us a picture of that album and why you made it? Uh, maybe even how people can get a hold of it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was called Songs for the Ritually Abused, and this album, once again, was something that I was just uh, driven to write because of personal accounts of people that I love and know super super close to me so this is this is actual account this is not hearsay stuff this is stuff that friends of mine loved ones that have actually gone through um, that I was able to detail and, and, and find out you know where and when this stuff happened you know tons of it happened in San Diego and Orange County and California is a big big movement of you know of the disassociative identity disorder where they program people and, and torture them till they fragment you know which goes back to the Nazi Germany stuff where they tried to make super soldiers. All that stuff is satanic, and that's where the roots of that stuff was. But God just kept bringing these people to me. I mean, God brought these people with these stories that, you know, uh, a lot of people would either be so uh, so unnerved to even, even hear the, you know, the, <laughs> the full story as far as where it ended up, or so thinking, surely they're lying, or they're crazy. Or something, you know, something to, to that to that realm because it's just it's just so unbelievable. But the thing is, is that the stories were absolutely a hundred percent consistent with each other as far as how the how the enemy works. Um, it talks it talks in the Bible, um, you know, about about things happening, you know, in, in the deepest, you know, darkest places, you know, you know, under under the temple. It talks about you know ritual abuse way back then. But the thing is, is that. Um, you know, there's no one. There's no one really talking about there. There's not an open dialogue to make uh, someone not, not feel like a freak. I mean, 
pastors, you know, should be the most inviting person in the world for anything, any disability, any 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 uh, any problem, anything you're dealing with, any kind of lust, any kind of whatever, any kind of things that that, that brings you shame. They should be like in, in the most open invitation to be able to speak to, but when they're not, and if they're not, and if you don't have a friend, where do you go to? I mean, where literally, where where do you go to to hear those stories to unwork, you know, thirty years of damage that you know a therapist won't even believe you. Half the therapists don't even believe that stuff even happened. You know, they'll they'll call it false memory and all this other junk. Um, but the thing is, is that, you know, Satan does do that stuff. Um, you know, ritual abuse, satanic ritual abuse and sexual abuse, they go hand in hand. They, they try to, they try to make the perpetrator Jesus in a lot of these instances. So they're terrified to ever get help from Christians or anybody that, that claims to know Jesus because they say, Oh no, 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 not Jesus. They, they brought Jesus in and he's the one that did this to me. They do that. I mean, you would just be sickened and shocked. How many times I've heard they say, oh, no, 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 not Jesus. He's the one that came in with the right robe and did this to me. Wow. So they dress up like him. They, I mean, they just, they make a whole mockery of the blood of Christ and, and everything, you know, that us Christians hold sacred and, and, and hold on to. They make it something that is that is used for triggering or to mock. I mean, the whole thing about, you know, the you know, Anton LaVey's Satanic Bible is to mock the Bible uh, cover cover, you know, inside out. That's the whole point of it. Yeah, but, but you still, but you still offer hope um, throughout that album, which I thought was really absolutely. interesting in, in the midst yes, in the midst absolutely. of that. How how can people get a hold of that album? Um, they can go to uh, lowercase randyrose dot info, and I still have some vinyls of that, Ooh. and I'm actually working on a, on a new one, a Kickstarter one that I'm about a year overdue, at least a year overdue. <laughs> that's going to be coming out with even heavier topics than that. So. Pray that I'm able to finish that and get that out in time, but that should be coming out shortly too. Awesome. But yeah, yeah. But I mean, it's 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 a sick world out there, and, and this is not the time to cower. You know, this is not the time to you know just wor- <laughs> be so worried about offending people. You know. So that was that was what it, Randy Rose, all over Randy case? Rose, yeah, yeah, all over case Randy Rose dot info. Randy Rose.info. In fact, I may be on there right now because I did not know you had vinyl available, and that is my new uh, obsession is oh, vinyl. Cool. Yeah, so I, I will be contacting you right away. Randy, thank you so much for joining me. This is this is beyond even what I expected. I'm super excited for people to hear this, awesome. and um, we will be talking thank again you. soon as we can talk to maybe you and your brother at the same time as we talk about that the Mad great. at the World projects. But um, thank you for joining me, and you've been talking, or I've been talking, with Randy Rose of Mad at the World about his album, Sacrificium. And we'll be back with more right here on Legacy. Number 938.
There were a lot of bands, especially in Christian music in the 70s and the 80s, who liked to borrow from C.S. Lewis's classic children's series, The Chronicles of Narnia. There were several bands named Narnia, several bands named Aslan. And here, with this classic album from 1974, we have a band called Narnia and an album called Aslan is Not a Tame Lion. Featuring the amazing vocals of Pauline Philby and kind of an early incarnation of After the Fire, primarily featuring Peter Banks, Narnia was a band that kind of fused folk, rock, and prog rock all into a great collection of music, especially here on this tune. The two girls that are part of the Pevensey family from the Chronicles of Narnia came to Mr. Beaver and asked him, Is Aslan a tame lion? His response, well, you should just read it for yourself in the Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And number 938, Narnia with Aslan is not a tame lion. Number 937. Spanning five decades of creating music and performing concerts, Brush Arbor has been one of the most successful bands in the history of Christian music. And yet a lot of people still aren't that familiar with this great country band. Well, there's a lot of folks taking too much advice. They wind up living someone else's life. first album came out in 1973 and they are still recording even today so we've got five decades of great music one of my favorite songs in the entire catalog though is a cover of david edwards song the unique thing is, is they changed the name of the song to release on this album
Known for their great harmonies, similar to that of maybe Poco or the Eagles, mixed with the Alabama country sound, they have remained a favorite throughout the history of the band. That is Brush Arbor with Hideaway. Number 936. Raspberry Jam was a band based out of Southern California signed to Metro One Records, which was Crystal Lewis and Brian Ray's label. The album actually was not the first thing that the band put out. They had a couple different demos and some uh, changes in terms of the lineup, and they kind of settled on this album with two lead singers, male and female, Philip Kim and Angel Short, that gave us a great groove rock sort of sound all the way throughout. the following album would have more of an atmospheric alternative sort of sound and there are hints of that in this album this album really is all about the groove Number 936, that is Raspberry Jam with Cairo. Number 935.
Giant Killer may be one of the most rare albums to make it on this list. Though they did three albums, and most of them were only available in England, eventually Starsong picked up this album, Valley of Decision, and released it into the United States. Unfortunately, it definitely did not get the response that it deserved. Brilliant, progressive new wave, great drum beats, killer vocals, great production, which by the way, a tip of a hat to Jimmy Hotz and Kemper Crab, who of course will both find their way onto this list as we go on. Fans like uh, who, who love stuff like Undercover, Imitators, the choir, stuff like that are really going to enjoy it. And also those who love that more European or British sort of new wave, the Ishmael United's Predators and even Alan Wall. Number 935, that is Giant Killer and Valley of Decision. Number 934. Acts 2.17, which comes from the idea of peace, and Ephesians 2.17 was a short-lived band out of Orange County, California that fit right into that kind of P.O.D. Thousand Foot Crutch sort of mold. Bring it back with that bass line And let me bust another one of my question rhymes Whatever happened to play in the mind Little kids been in castles, all they understood Thinking but not too much about the box Where they said was their world and all that Was in it was good Playing all day till the streetlight came on the band ended up releasing pretty much just two full-length albums, later an EP, and then much, much later, a live project. So they didn't have a whole lot out, but this first one, their debut album, really was the best. with their debut album, 217, at number 934. Number 933. 
1988, working at Maranatha Village, I began to notice that most of the heavy metal that was coming out was more of the big hair sort of metal. The L.A. big hair scene that you would find in maybe the music of Striper or Shout. And what we really needed was a straight-ahead Queensryche, Scorpion sort of hard rock heavy metal. And along came Sacred Warrior. The debut album, Rebellion, became an instant hit, both in the uh, area of Chicago where the band was from, but also across the rest of the country that was really sorely needing hard rock, heavy metal sort of music. Ray Perra's voice is simply one of the best in the history of Christian metal, and he shows it off here. band actually went on to have a great career and we will be talking about more of their albums as the countdown goes down but this debut album really set things apart for what they were doing and what was to come That is Sacred Warriors Rebellion at number 933. 
Here at Legacy, we want to make it easy for you to find us. There are several different ways that you can talk to us and let us know what you think about what is going on here at the podcast and also on the blog. You can always go to our website at LegacyCCMsGreatestAlbums.com. That's LegacyCCMsGreatestAlbums.com or by email at LegacyCCMsGreatestAlbums at gmail.com. You can always find us on the Facebook and interact with us there at facebook.com slash legacy ccm's greatest albums at instagram at legacy ccm's greatest albums and finally on twitter at legacy ccm's best number 932 when I first decided to do this countdown and this podcast, the one band that I definitely wanted to have on was the band Servant. And I am so excited that I had the opportunity recently to speak with three of the founding members of Servant, including husband and wife duo Owen and Sandy Brock, along with Rob Martins. Coming up right now is that conversation that we had as we discussed the album Shallow Water. Welcome back to Legacy. I'm your host, David Lohman, and I am so excited to, uh, and I promised them I wouldn't go all fanboy, but I know that I will. I have founding members of the group Servant on with me to discuss the iconic album, Shallow Water. I have Sandy and Owen Brock, and I have Rob Martins. They are joining me right now. Um... And I am just super excited to have you guys be a part of this. In fact, when I first started this this idea of doing Legacy, there was about five people that I really wanted to have on, five artists, Servant, Resurrection Band, Randy Stonehill, and, and maybe like Terry Scott Taylor. So there's just a handful that I just really wanted to have on so that when you guys responded, my wife's all like, what are you screaming about? And I said, Servant said yes. <laughs> so I would love to get a little bit of the, the history since um all three of you were founding members in terms of the, that first album shallow water how did that all come together where did servant come from well, well part of a ministry it, it, uh, it probably be easy the easiest way just to back up a little bit and say that sandy and i were involved in a ministry in europe that did a lot of rock music and theater um and helped uh, start the greenbelt music festival that's just still going on so when we Moved back to the state. Sandy's from New Jersey. I'm from Victoria, where Rob's from. 
And when we moved back into that area, Victoria, Victoria area, we ended up um, starting a community and a band all at the same time because we wanted to reach our peers. And that was the purpose for the band, was that the music was a way to share our hearts. The music was a way to reach people our age because we all have a story. And I know ourselves, my, our story is different than Rob's, but you know, we went through that whole hippie, drug, sex, rock, and roll, travel Europe, do all, all of that, and then met Jesus. And so it was pretty life-changing for us. And then you want to be able to share this thing that's happening. You know, how do I communicate this very, very important shift in my life? And and so so you have this and I and there's a lot of names that people will hear get passed around in in, in regards to that with with um I, I always I, I don't want to mispronounce is it Polisari, um and a couple other names of people that were very much involved with this community but uh, there's also some movement of the community um, as I remember there was times of being on the west coast was it Oregon um, in the Oregon area at some point. Yeah, in Grants Pass, Oregon, uh, right on Fish Hatchery Road, beautiful little hideaway place. Yeah. Well, we started in Victoria. So, so we met the early members of the band were Sandy and I and Rob and uh, David Bruce. Holmes on drums and Bruce Wright. No, no, the first one was Lou St. Cyr, <laughs> ex-Black yes. Panther who played a conga. Uh, and, and then eventually <laughs> David Holmes joined us. And David knew you, right, Rob? Is that is that how the connection was made with you? I I think he might have met up with Bruce first. Um, yeah, Bruce, it was just like the guitar player was really the only real serious musician, musician. of the bunch of yeah. us. <laughs> he was the one that actually, since he was a kid, was playing in bars and had a serious music thing. I always just wanted to sing. I loved singing. Um, my grandfather, when I was a little toddler, he was Italian, and he told my mom, she's going to be a singer. And <laughs> I, I just love it, but I had no training. Owen played an acoustic guitar, but never really had any training. Rob, what did you have Baptist choir training? <laughs> I had Baptist choir training. I actually did uh, grade 11 and 12 uh, choir at school, believe it or not. And... Uh, yeah, so hone my. The only problem was, I was classically trained vocally. So when we went to record music, I had to stand way back from the mic in order to get a good mix with the rest of the band who were up close and personal, personal with the mic, and uh, always had to kind of tone down the energy I was putting in. Um, when is your bass? When did you start bass? And uh, bass guitar, um, I kind of picked it up in school, in senior high. So I was kind of a late bloomer. And when I met Bruce, I met Bruce before um, I met with you guys. And uh, he basically taught everything I know about bass up to that point. Mm -hmm. So all the riffs, all the little fingering things, they were all Bruce Wright stuff. So... Yeah, so David, what you have to understand is we were just a ragtag bunch of young people and who had an idea and decided to give it a go. Now, and, and the thing is, we were so poor at the time, David, we were 
we we couldn't afford we couldn't afford to be a garage band. We were actually in a laundry room <laughs> in, in in the basement of the house in Vic West. You guys remember that? Yes. No. I don't remember the room, but I remember. I, I remember the room because if you stood up, you'd be your head would be in between the rafters. <laughs> so, so David, the, the the band played up around all around the Pacific Northwest, and we Parks we were and... really not very good musicians, but playing lots of parks, lots of other venues, we eventually got better at what we were doing, mm -hmm. and. Um, and then the, as the community grew, we eventually started looking for property. We moved down to the States. We, we lived in San Francisco for a bit and then eventually found property in Southern Oregon. And the year that we found that property in Southern Oregon is the year that uh, Shallow Water was um, recorded and released in, in 1979. And it, it was um, on this little label up in Canada uh, called uh, Toonsmith who uh, was part of, what, what I think, Praise Unlimited or Praise Industries, and they were kind of known, they made these kind of early, before Praise and Worship was really a thing, and I remember some songbooks and different things, and then all of a sudden, um, here comes bands like Amaziah and Servant and Barnabas, and and all of a sudden, this, 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 little, this little label was putting out some of the most progressive and um, edgy music uh, at the time, and I think Shallow Water was really kind of um, uh, groundbreaking in 1979 in an era when probably the only other band, at least on a national level, that got some really good exposure would have been Resurrection Band with their first two albums. And even the early Petra never really kicked in until like Never Say Die when they went on tour with you guys. Um, so, so you were kind of breaking a whole lot of ground. Now, when you're breaking ground like that, does it feel like you're breaking ground? <laughs> Yes, sir. Yes. <laughs> well, we have to say, I think we have to give credit to Jim Polisari for that. He had a theater background and mm. he loved to push the envelope. He loved to push the edge. And so he wanted us to be as good as what was going on out there. But in, in the religious circles, you needed to be a praise band. You know, the Maranatha things was okay and then there became some questions about but wait rock and roll rock and roll that's like uh, the devil you know that's you can you play this music this is what the world is doing and people are doing drugs listening to rock music you can't play that and so for we wanted to play music that our peers were listening to so yes it was groundbreaking for us to step out and to do it regardless and to try to be genuine to who we were. Um, and we got a lot of pushback. Well, I'll tell you first about those Christian bookstores, what they did with the came <laughs> Yeah, well, I was I had just started working in, in some of those at the time. But I, I remember the very first time I heard it, my immediate reaction was kind of like, wait. That's like that voice box thing that even like that Peter Frampton did. That's not like supposed to be on Christian <laughs> albums. And... Um, but more than anything, and, and kind of before we really talk about the music, maybe some of the controversy, I wanted to bring up one thing. I've always appreciated the fact that Servant, for me, was probably the first artist outside of, I think Larry Norman touched on some of these subjects as well, that dealt with what I call biblical justice. I don't use the term social justice per se, um, uh, because some of the baggage that might come and go with that depending on some people's perspective, but there's biblical justice. And... 
you guys addressed some of those things way before, and I've actually, before the rock music controversy, I'm curious if, if you also dealt with um, some of the issues in the church when you do songs like Cup of Water um, and the opening credits of, of the album, in a sense. For those that aren't familiar with it, there is a little opening segment where you, where you are, as a band, kind of around talking, and it matches the album cover, and you're out on the beach, and you're, you're talking about these vacations on the, the French coast or things like that, and then all of a sudden you kind of get hit with the wave, and the wave is a really good guitar riff. Um, did you also deal with some of those subject matter issues within the church as well as the rock music issue? I I think one of the things is is that's the era that we were born into when the when the Jesus movement happened. I mean, we joke about this, but we tongue in cheek we say we think Jesus was coming back in a couple of weeks, so we better get about saving the world here. And one of the things that didn't feel right to us is the the issues about poverty and how the church related to those issues and um, and and so. From the very get-go, it seemed to be part of our impetus to live in community, to share our things with others. We did, our community did refugee relocation. So all that kind of began emerging out of the, the Well, wasn't songs. it too, because remember, we were trying, we were coming from a non-church background. And so when we read the scripture, we were reading Acts, we just wanted to do what we read. They were living together. They were sharing yeah, yeah. together. They it was were all new to us. Poor. You know, so that, that I, a lot of it was just our interpretation of the scriptures. It seemed like Jesus was concerned for the poor and confronting powers and authority. So some of that was just obvious to come out of our, our music. And I think we just felt called. Uh, th- there was a synergy between the way we're living our lives and the music we're writing. I think we just felt called that that was... Part of the thing God wanted us to do was to share with others. Um, in fact, a lot of our early co- concerts were mostly unbelievers. We were, we were before the first record We were playing in parks, bar- bars and parks and other places like that. And so we really came out of that. It wasn't actually. It was funny. We were we, we, we were doing a concert with Randy Matthews, who was a big deal at the time. And, we loved him. And we were opening for Randy, and he came out. I remember he introduced us. He came out on stage. He says. It was the weirdest thing because there was a whole group of Christians and he said, uh, the band's backstage and they're really nervous. And that's the weirdest thing because we just played in a pub last night and I was the one that was nervous. And so, <laughs> we, you know, tr- we we're trading up with our, most of our experience had been playing around unbelievers. And so we're, now we're at a Christian crowd and we're a little bit nervous about that. Yeah, Randy, Randy was great. I mean, he was one of the funniest people I ever met in my entire life. I've never enjoyed laughing as much as when I introduced Randy Matthews that one night. And he was just um, a joy to be around. And yet he could uh, turn that on a dime when he turned when he started playing, didn't he? And wow, you could you could definitely hear a pin drop, and you know the gospel is being explained. Now, looking at the album cover, and you grabbed yours as well. Th- th- I think "Shallow Water" seems to be kind of a perfect picture because the the whole album is kind of filled with water imagery, including a cover of of one of the truly great classics, "Water Grave." I mean, just an amazing song. Who whose decision was it to to do a cover of such a powerful song and pretty well known song? I mean, Imperials and a handful of others throughout the years had done that song. I don't know. Do you remember Rob? How that, there, there was a water thing. We had that right, and I somebody must have heard the song. And you know, I'm, I'm wondering if it's possible that Doug Pennick might have uh, 
got us interested in that. Could have been. Mm-hmm. Matt Spranzi was good friend. It was now this goes back, but there was another band named Servant. Matt Spranzi yep. was a part of, and Doug Pennant of Kings X. Of Kings X was in there, so he used to come on the roadie for us and encourage us. Oh. It was lovely, and um, <laughs> and so yes, he did add different things. But I I don't remember, but I do remember that this was like a big deal for us. Because we were trying to do metaphor through this photo. We actually had the photo before we recorded the record. I think we, we knew what we were doing. Like we really thought about it. Yeah. We're, we're not far from where we're living in Oregon. We drove down to the the coast it and so cool. got a local photographer who was doing journalism for the local Grants Pass newspaper, and he came down and we did this big thing. But this this album cover actually kept us out of a few. Christian bookstores. Well, uh, and of course you were cold because you were on the Oregon coast and yeah. it's 102 in Portland and it's 52 and sun- and, and and rainy on the coast. <laughs> it was cold. But the idea was to, you know, was to set this picture, you know, here are these people and they have everything they need. They can there's opulence, they can live the easy life. They're talking about their their trips to the White Mountains and all that they can do. And and they're reading, you know, in the headline of the paper says millions starve and there's this impending wave of doom behind them and they're oblivious. They're oblivious. And, and so the Christian bookstore sent it back because it had a champagne bottle on the cover. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, I could tell you CBA stories, but um, those ones are, are best left for not being on the podcast. But I will say, I, I bought... Um, as I mentioned before, my first cassette I ever bought was Rock and Revival. I was at a um, church youth camp, and they had a little bookstore, and everybody else was buying candy with their money. And I went and and bought Randy Stonehill's Welcome to Paradise and mm-hmm. Servants Rock and Revival. And completely admitting from the very beginning, I only bought it because it said Rockin'. In the cover, and I bought it and became a fan. So I went to a Christian bookstore, and they said, "Oh, they actually had an album that came out about a year ago called Shallow Water." And by then, I had gotten a record player, so I started uh, collecting vinyl at that point, and I bought uh, Shallow Water. So you know, within a week, I bought the, the, the first two albums and kind of became an, an, an instant fan. But I found that I go back to. I, I kind of joke with my friends that I, I go back to Rock and Revival when I'm in my car and I just want to drive and listen to music, but I go back to Shallow Water when I want to sit in my room with my record player and listen to an album and, 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 and look at lyrics and contemplate on, on a message. So I find it, it's, um, it draws me back in, and the imagery of the water, especially with a cup of water, um, my... Um, my my church at that time I was probably a little middle schooler, but our high school group had kind of a little Christian band, and they always would do the acapella version of of Cup of Water because it was just a very powerful song, and so they would always be doing that one. So, Servant has always been a part of my life as long as Christian music's been a part of my life, and this album especially um, s- says a lot to me. Now, when I moved and saw you guys for the very first time, what blew me away was like uh, I had seen, I think at that point, I'd seen Sticks in Kansas in concert, and I went, this is like a real 
rock band like to put on a show and i this was before the lasers but this was still uh, a show um is that is that jim's is that jim's palisari's influence of creating an on-stage presence all that was what this theater production that we did in europe called lonesome stone used professional theater lighting we had a director all of that stuff and so by the time we landed space and started this band we had already been doing two or three years in a large kind of theater production setting big music festivals with well the kind of gear that you have now so for uh, the, the the idea of doing something theatrical and telling stories more was mm -hmm. absolutely jim Yes. innovation now rob's wife was our lighting tech so describe our first lights rob our our first lights are basically um a bis your basic flood lamp that you would put out in front of your house to light it up for christmas well we would take one of those and a stove pipe and somehow screw it all together and make it look like real theater lights but they really were not but it somehow we managed to glow i don't know how but it it and no one died so that was a good thing but you know because i remember bob running around the stage and and and, and sandy being up front and, and and sharing a gospel message but doing it in such a, a a powerful way those those sort of images 40 years in my mind and yet i can still remember each time that i saw you guys and where you were at and what you were doing i remember the world of sand tour and i remember hearing I've, in fact i saw the tour before i heard the album and i went wait that come jesus comes i know i've heard that song before and went back and researched and saw that oh yeah that's right that's from lonesome stone which you'd mentioned uh, previously um we, we just have just a, a few minutes left before we, we um i have to we have to go but i want to kind of get a feel for at that time was there an a concept of of this ever expanding servant or was this just this is going to be a lot of fun we'll we'll ride it you know and maybe do a couple albums um or was there this feeling this is something for us to be able to take and share the gospel um in a way that hadn't been done before um in in, in the world at that time um was there long-term um oriented things or were this oh boy i sure hope we can you know make it to the next show <laughs> with enough gas in the van well it's you know it started off like we talked about about just trying to reach people for jesus and there was no real industry for christian rock music i mean you write the res band uh then a little bit later again Amos, sweet, sweet there was a few bands around there was, a, there was a band in the seattle area called um wilson mckinley mm -hmm. another band called joshua you'd be familiar with this a lot and people like larry and, and randy that were doing things but there was wasn't really an industry it was um no support it was a miracle that we got signed to the label and actually we were the ones that called the name tunesmith because it was praise records and we were just not going to put a rock record on praise records so <laughs> we said can we change that can we have a, a label but so uh, gradually of course as things developed when we started making records and we toured I think we must have done about 2,500 concerts over a 10-year period. It, 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 you know, it, it initially, after when the first record came out, we started playing a couple hundred dates a year. And it, oh some particular, God. some place you get, we wanted to get a little bit better off with uh, income and 
uh, notoriety so that we wouldn't have to tour so much. I mean, we're just getting pretty bored out by the end of the month. And uh, Jesus didn't come back in two weeks, and so we were left to trying to think <laughs> about our future. <laughs> Yeah, it was a hard decision to stop the band. It was it had it had become our life, didn't it, Rob? It really, we we I don't know if anybody ever gave more to making this thing happen than we did, and uh, we could tell you horror stories of sleeping in trailers and equipment breaking down and people yeah. ending up in hospitals, and uh, it was a it was a rugged road. So by the time we finally stopped, we were definitely and a lot of pushback. Be, we got picketed at concerts. We had. I got a lot, you know, as a woman, I got a lot of pushback about like, how come I could talk and and preach the gospel? Oh, because my husband's standing right next to me. You know, <laughs> there's just a lot of things to push through. Yeah, in fact, I remember, and I, I think it might have been Matt, and I, I, I'm sure he won't recollect it, but um, it was just one of those things where there, this one concert that I saw you guys at that I was backstage and there was like no food. Uh, the promoter didn't have food, so I remember running to In-N-Out Burger and... <laughs> And bringing some back just to, to to help out, so that the you know the bands and the other band that was you guys were with at the time could could have something to eat. But a lot of people don't recognize what sacrifices um, took place. But in our conversation um, offline, you'd mentioned that you actually still have some product available. I would love to find a way to empty your basement. How would anybody, if they wanted to, get a hold of any servant stuff? Uh, is there a there's a there is a website for the Where band, and that? it's a very old. And I'm wondering if there's contact information on it. There is. It's it's a somewhere, but it's servantband.com. It has our whole history. It has photos. Owen's a graphic designer. He did the website. He put it together. Literally 2007. So it's a pretty yeah. website at this point. But there is. Um, I believe an address in there, or if you go to, yeah, I think there, yes, yeah, servant at servantband.com. They can they can yes. send that, and I think I will st still get it. But there is, <laughs> yeah, there's there's actually a lot of there's a lot of human ocean and caught in the act LPs. Um, I can remember the day when we moved and we put thirty boxes of caught in the act on the curb for the trash man well vinyl again is once again is all the rage so we will definitely let people know i'm going to go ahead and i'm going to put that um um email and that website information on the show notes so if you're listening to the podcast just go to the show notes and you can link directly uh talk about how you can get a hold of of, of some of the music i wanted to thank you guys so much for joining me and i do hope that as we go through world of sand and rock and revival and my my all-time personal favorite the the last two i just adore um i love swimming in a human ocean and I think We Are the Light is one of the 10 greatest uh, songs performed live that I ever saw. That thing was so moving for me as both a fan and as a young Christian uh, to this anthem. So hopefully you'll be able to come back and join me as we talk about some of these other albums and we can bring some other band members on as well. Um, but if you... Uh, Let people know that we do not have any CDs of Light Maneuvers and Human Ocean. I know all the time and it's really a shame <laughs> yeah it's really a shame those two albums were never re-released on cd when a lot of those other albums came out and 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 such but 
I think we might be able to re-release them at some point because the copyright is run out. So who knows? Well, that would be that would be wonderful. I know there would be a lot of people uh, banging down the door, especially for how good sonically um, "Swimming in a Human Ocean" just sonically mm-hmm. is such an amazing album to be able to hear that on it's CD. Working. Yeah, Dave Perkins. Yeah, Dave Perkins is a whole different conversation because he's amazing. So I just um, again thank you so much for for joining me. I do look forward to some uh, future conversations. Um, and so we've been listening to our new friends from Servant that I've only known for forty years. <laughs> That they uh, they now know that they have a fanboy in the, the the Portland Vancouver area who has been a big supporter and a big fan for a really long time. Uh, thank you again to to Rob and to Sandy and to Owen um, for being a part of Legacy, and we'll be right back right here on Legacy. I'd like to thank my guests, Randy Rhodes, and the three founding members of Servant. That's Owen and Sandy Brock, along with Rob Martins. And I'd also just like to thank you for joining me each and every episode as we count down the very best music in the history of Christian music. On our next episode, we will be talking to Chris Brigandi and Crystal Lewis from Wild Blue Yonder and another special guest if we can get it done. So, we've got a lot heading your way and the countdown continues right here on Legacy. See you next time. See you.